been thinking about this. This is our eighth Sunday morning together this way, and, and this morning here, at least in Northern Virginia, is somewhat dreary morning, a little bit of rain out there. Um, I am not always a person, not always a preacher who is very cognizant of the clock on the wall, and, and seems like probably even less so now when there's really not an audience here. And since you're at home and, and you're on your chair, and you can grab another cup of coffee if you choose, you can relax, and we can go as long as we want. Well, um, one other thing, just by way of announcements, just want to mention, this is uh, R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. I'd mentioned during the men's conference a week ago, um, just the, the, the challenge of, that this book brings, just the perspective it brings on God's holiness um, and the encouragement that, that many uh, writers, preachers, and others have said over, over the years that this is one of those books that's probably good to be on your annual reading list to just go back and meditate again on the holiness of God. So I want to follow that up with what I said at the men's conference and invite any of you who would like to participate. We're going to do um, this as kind of a book reading club, if you will, via Zoom, Monday nights, uh, starting a week from Monday night. Um, we'll just get together and we'll talk about reading in the book. We'll try to do that over the course of uh, the rest of May and the month of June. Uh, we'll go through the book, The Holiness of God. So we'll have more info. Also planning to do, uh, Pastor Short is going to do a, a study as well that will be offered on Monday nights. And so we'll give you a couple options on things to do and to, uh, to tune in for on Zoom. Uh, we'll send that information out to you by email tomorrow. Matthew chapter 11, you don't need to turn there right now. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. But in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is preaching and he is giving the good news as he's traveling cities in Judea, and he gives an invitation that is among the most poignant that we find in the Gospels. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The word for labor means weary, and so some translations will say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. If you are wore out, if you are feeling as if you are trying to carry something that you can no longer hold, that you can no longer lift, Jesus says, come to me. He describes in that phrase both the internal sense of weariness, of, of, of the, the sense of fatigue, but also by saying heavy laden talks about the external burden itself, that which is pressing down. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. He uses this um, agricultural illustration that would have been very familiar to his listeners in that day. The yoke was this wooden frame that went over the necks and around the necks of the oxen so you could pair two oxen together so they could share the work, they could pull the load together, and then their strength was multiplied. First century Jews also understood that symbolic in the oxen and, and the yoke was this picture of submission because the oxen, when they were yoked, were then led by the, the farmer who, who drove that cart. An ancient Jewish proverb said, put your neck under the yoke and let your souls receive instruction. In other words, submit to what you are taught. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, it's not just a matter of saying, well, I'll, I'll come to Jesus and I'll lay down my burden and walk away. He says, no, join yourself to me, yoke yourself to me. Take my yoke and learn from me. Be in submission to me. And, and the beauty of that is what we receive. For having come to Jesus with our burden, for having 
come to him and been yoked to him and learning from him, he then goes on and he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Twice in that Matthew 11 invitation, Jesus spoke of rest. It's the point I want to make that's ultimately going to tie us back to Acts chapter 3, but he says, you will find rest for your souls. I will give you rest. The Greek word for rest literally means to breathe again. I, I am old enough to remember man's first landing on the moon. I was at an age where I was fascinated by that stuff and watched it, and, and there was a bit of trepidation when man first landed a spacecraft on the moon as to exactly what would happen. And if any of you remember that or have watched documentaries on it when it did happen, the famous line from mission control after men landed on the moon was, you got a bunch of guys here about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. The idea of relief from just an overwhelming sense of pressure. In the midst of heavy burdens, you can feel overwhelmed by pressure. The stress can feel like you're, you're just holding your breath and you're waiting and wondering for when relief will come, what will happen next. Jesus said, I want you to come to me and I will give you rest. I will enable you to, to breathe again. The Greek word for rest even came to be used in, in the context of pouring water on someone who was overheated to cool them down. So it's this refreshment. The idea of rest is not just sleep, but it's the idea of something that refreshes the soul, that gives energy and strength. Turn to Acts chapter 3, and that's where we are this morning. We're going to work through the whole chapter of, uh, the, of Acts chapter 3, and in fact, into probably the first half of chapter 4, because it all connects to this one story that takes place on the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple. We know from Acts chapter 2 that at this point, the body of believers in Jesus Christ is growing. There are literally now thousands of believers in Jesus Christ. The truth is being taught. The Spirit of God is working through the, the testimony of the apostles as they speak God's word, and also through the lives of the believers, and many are coming to faith in Christ. And so by the time we pick up in chapter Chapter 3, there are these, these crowds of believers who gather regularly at the temple. They meet in the, the, the courtyard areas surrounding the temple for worship and also for the apostles' teaching. They are there coming together as a body of believers. And so here in Acts chapter 3, we're going to see a miracle that gives Peter a chance to speak again to a large crowd. Not only now do you have believers, but in light of the miracle that takes place, there's this, again, large crowd that's interested, curious, that begins to gather around, and, and Peter will again begin to speak of the essence of the gospel, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his dying for our sins, and in doing so, he will again call on his audience to repent, something we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and then he will speak of what comes to those who repent. And I want to jump sort of midway into Peter. We'll go back to the, the, the beginning of the chapter in just a moment. But I just want you to see something in Acts 3, verse 19. After he has spoken of Jesus Christ and his suffering, he says in Acts 3, 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets 
long ago. Here's Peter saying, if you will repent, here is, here is what God holds for you. Here is what God offers to you. That repentance theme we talked about two weeks ago, it is um, change of thinking. It is uh, an, an internal response to truth that, that says I was thinking wrongly and now I am I am turning in this direction. I am turning 180 from what I had been thinking before. And so it's a change of thinking that leads to a, a change in belief and action. There's a transformation that, that follows repentance. Because in the case of the gospel, it means I, I no longer live where I did before in terms of believing what I did or not even believing at all about Jesus. I now believe the truth. I now understand who he is and what he's done. If you've clung to any belief that, that your greatest problem in life is something other than the sin that separates you from your creator, then the word of God says to turn from that belief. If you've clung to any idea that, that the biggest problem in my life is anything other than the sin that separates me from God, that is to be repented of. If you've if you've held to any idea that somehow you by yourself could make yourself right with God, that you could do something, perform something, that you could somehow justify yourself before God and, and, and prove your worthiness, you need to turn from that. If you've held an opinion of Jesus Christ that makes him to be anything less then the Lord over creation and the Savior of those who come to him, the one who died, who we desperately need, if you've had any belief in Jesus that is less than that, then turn from that. You must repent of that God's truth. Acknowledge what you have believed or what you have done before in error and turn. In fact, he starts that verse 19 with a double imperative. Repent and turn. Change your thinking, turn your whole life, and now embrace the truth about Jesus Christ. And when you do that, Peter says, just like what Peter had heard Jesus preach that's recorded in Matthew chapter 11, Peter goes on and he says, and when you do that, when you believe that your sin was punished in the death of Jesus Christ and that he is risen and that he is Lord and that he is Savior, when you do that, there is rest for your soul. And that rest comes from the blotting out of your sin and the knowledge that Jesus Christ is returning for you. When verse 20 says times of refreshing, when he says that repent, your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That word for refreshing is the same word Jesus used in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me and I will give you rest. Peter is speaking back what he already knows to be true because he heard it from the lips of Jesus and he has experienced it himself. There is rest. There is refreshment for you in Jesus Christ if you will turn to him. Now, I want to come back to how he gets there, but let's start beginning in chapter 3, the miracle that sets this all up. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. This, this man, lame from birth, has first-hand experience of what it is to carry a wearisome burden day after day. 
This, this guy knows what it is to be weighted down. To be disabled in many ancient cultures was akin to a death sentence. In fact, if you go back to uh, some of the background, there was a, a Roman code that rested behind much of what became Roman law, and it ordered that disabled or deformed children be killed. Some were simply taken outside of the city gates and left out to be exposed to the elements. The Jewish people obviously had learned differently that in the image of God, we know from Old Testament examples, they were not always obedient to that. But in these times, in the first century, they generally understood what is true, that life is precious and valuable because it is made in the image of God. But that, that didn't change the reality. There were no government assistance for, for families with a disabled child. There was no nonprofits doing good work of providing care and service to those who were in need. It rested all on the family. And so what it describes for us here, him being carried and set at the, the gate of the temple, lets us see that it was not unusual for family members to take someone who had been disabled, who, who it was difficult for them to support, and put him in a public place where he would sit day after day and beg, essentially for his survival. And, and in doing so, withstand all of the, the looks and the comments that implied that that disability was some form of punishment for some sin. We know Jesus dealt with this with the disciples back in the Gospel of John when they wanted to know who sinned this man who was born blind, him or his parents. And Jesus said, this is that the glory of God might be magnified in some way. And so this man is not only having to go through the agony of not being able to walk from birth, having to be carried and, and put in this place to beg and, and the humiliation that comes with that, but there's also that sinking at him and judging he and his family. We know from chapter 4 that he is more than 40 years old. His life has been reduced for all of these years to this form of survival. No rest, no refreshment, no hope, just the daily hardship of this incredible burden. Two followers of Jesus come, just like all of the other worshipers that he saw. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It is a time for prayer. It is a time for them to gather. He is there, and he is begging, and he sees them. He asked to receive alms, verse 3 says. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What an astonishing moment this is. Standing, walking, even jumping for the very first time in his life. It says he walks into the temple courts with Peter and John, praising God. In fact, Luke twice here says that he was praising God, that he is rejoicing at what God has done. Apparently, not only does the miracle happen instantly, not only is he healed physically, but the man is spiritually transformed because in that moment, he understands already that that the power behind what has just 
happened to him, what he has just experienced, is not from the hands of these two guys. It's not about them. It is about the God who did it, who accomplished this work through them. Now, before we go any further, we're going to come across a number of different miracles in the book of Acts, these healing miracles. We'll just make a couple of observations about healings in the book of Acts. They were signs. We've already seen this so far in Acts, that, that God did these things through his servants as signs. In Acts 2.43, it said there were signs and wonders that caused awe within every soul. They, they were meant to, to stir thinking, to move hearts of both believers in praise, but also unbelievers in curiosity, to to stimulate something in them. These miracles had the same function through the apostles as they did through Jesus, which was simply to grab people's attention and to commend the fact that the authority for the miracle was from God. So the speaker, the one who does the miracle, who is speaking truth, is not only empowered by God to do the miracle, but now speaks with the authority of God. That's the point of these signs, is to authenticate the servant and to display authority. That's what Peter said about Jesus in Acts 2.22, that God attested to Jesus. He, he proved Jesus, if you will, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Peter's told us the very point of the things that Jesus did that were supernatural was so that God would attest through Jesus his identity as to who he was that he was indeed divinely empowered, that he was sent from God, that he was speaking God's word. And so these miracles, like this one, where a man who has spent 40 years lame is now able to walk, is to show God's authority in the instrument who is doing the miracle. It is God's authority working through that person that authenticates Peter and John's ministry. You and I don't need that particular function today. The authority on which we hear from God, the authority on which God speaks to us, is the Word of God. We have Scripture. We have that which has been given to us by the prophets and the apostles, by which God has spoken to us. His truth has been revealed. I'm not revealing truth to you when I speak on Sunday mornings. I'm simply reading truth that has already been given by God in His Word and, and teaching it and, and hopefully helping us to apply it a little bit. That's the, 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 the purpose that exists in Acts that doesn't for us and that they don't have the New Testament yet. It's not clear yet who is it that has this authority to speak the word of God. Peter and John, by doing this, are displaying the authority that what they preach now, what Peter says in response to all this is indeed God's truth. Also, the, the miraculous healings that we read in the book of Acts are scattered throughout the book, and they are scattered throughout time. There's actually less than 10 actual healings or raisings of the dead over the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. We often talk about the signs and wonders, and there are sections that speak of multiple signs and wonders, and they don't specify them. But in terms of actual incidents, there's really not very many in the book of Acts. The church did not gather for so-called healing services, and that's because the, the miracles in Acts are often used by God to speak to unbelievers, to authenticate the message and to call them to faith in Jesus Christ, to help them, as in this instance, to see that it is Jesus who is at work through those apostles. The miracle served to authenticate the message. And so verse 11, Acts 3, 11. While he clung to Peter and John, 
all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is a profoundly public miracle and therefore of great importance in part because so many Jewish worshipers there in Jerusalem had seen this man. He is the, the beggar, the lame man that they know. He is there. Some of them have given to him. He has been there day after day. And so he is very evident to them. And so this miracle is not something of some stranger. This is a guy they know. In fact, in chapter 4, when it talks about how the Jewish religious leaders are, are sort of privately just irritated at what's happening in light of this man's being made well. There are people coming to faith in Christ. It says in, in Acts 4.14 that essentially they, they said nothing publicly because there was the man standing right there. They couldn't oppose him. Everybody knew the story. And so they, they, there was nothing they could do in a public sense to try to discount the miracle that had taken place. It was only in, in Acts 4, after they kicked Peter and John and the man out of the room, that in verse 16 of Acts 4, they say, what shall we do with these men? The fact that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. There's nothing we can do. We can't claim it wasn't a miracle, because it obviously was, and everyone knows it. The, the only point of confusion... The only point of possible dispute, and it's the, the one point that these Jewish leaders will try to play on when they sort of investigate this, is the question of who's responsible. Who ultimately is behind this miracle? Who's, in whose name is this done? And that's why in chapter 3, verse 12, Peter says, you're, you're staring at us as if by our, our power or piety we did this. You're, you're, if you're looking at us thinking somehow this was, was our hand that did this, you are completely wrong. And then he goes on and he says, you, you know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? This, it's almost a bit facetious on his part to say that, standing at the Jew. You know the God of Abraham, the, the God of Isaac and Jacob? He's the one you're here giving sacrifices to, who you say that you are worshiping? He did this, but then the... The twist he puts on it that, that maybe they didn't expect is he did this through his servant, Jesus. He says it is in the name of Jesus has been done. The, the culture in that day understood the name signified the person. It wasn't just their identification that, that, that said that this is who they are called. It was who that person was. And so when he says that in the name of Jesus, it, it, he is saying that it is through faith in Jesus that this man has been made strong. When he says that in verse 16, the, the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. That specific moment when this weary man put his faith in Jesus Christ is not specified in the text, but it is clear from verse 16 that he did. 
that there was a moment when he recognized that what Peter and John preached and who they served, the Jesus whom they had been proclaiming day after day in the courts around the temple, that it was he who did this. And he recognized it is because God did this work in his life. God saved this man. God initiates these kinds of things in saving people. It is God who who works. That's why we, when we pray, praying for God to save them. God's not in heaven waiting and wondering if some unbeliever is going to finally figure out Jesus and the gospel. It is God who came to this man through his servants, Peter and John, and he miraculously transforms the man, not just in body, but in spirit, so that his eyes, his heart are now opened, and he can see the truth. And he responds with faith in the name of the one who sent Peter and John, in the first place, he believes in Jesus. Not only is he physically healed, but he then experiences forgiveness of sins, as Peter will go on to say. Peter will preach this very same message the the next day when he is hauled before. Peter and John are are, are arrested, they're held for a night, and then they are hauled before the Jewish religious leaders. No real charges as much as causing a stir there around the temple. And in Acts chapter 4, when the high priest questions Peter. In Acts chapter 4, verse 7, he says, by what power or by what name did you do this? There's the the Jewish priests, the leading priests, looking at Peter and saying, by what name, by what power did you do this? Remember the legal experts who say that if you're a lawyer in court, you never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. I'm sure that the high priest knew what Peter had already told others, and what he believed the answer to be. But you have to believe also, it doesn't say it clearly in the text, but I I, I think we can assume that the priests also remembered how frightened Peter had been just two months ago when he had been asked about the name of Jesus. It wasn't all that long ago at all that Peter had been asked to confess the name of Jesus, to confess that he was merely a follower of Jesus. And you remember the story at the trial of Jesus when Peter is outside in the courtyard and people are identifying him and he's saying, no, I don't know him. I don't know this man. I am completely denying him. And I I would have to believe that that's what the priest is relying on at this point. These Jewish priests have figured that they, they, they put these men through a night in jail. They've now hauled them before all of the Jewish religious leaders, the rulers and elders and scribes, and they are gathered there And the hope is to finally intimidate this guy into silence, to finally get the Peter that they believed Peter was and that he would be a coward and he would back down. And he didn't. If you look in chapter 4, when they ask this question, it's at the end of verse 7. Acts 4, verse 7, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's the source of Peter's Courage. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Let me pause there. Plan thwarted. The idea of intimidating Peter and John and bringing them in front of the whole council and saying, go ahead, tell us in whose name you did this. And Peter, emboldened and strengthened by the Spirit of God, preaches the same uncompromising indictment that he gave on the day of Pentecost, and he's now including you guys. He's saying to the religious leaders, he's including them in this. You did this too. You crucified Jesus. The, the, the point I, I make in, in showing you that at Peter's response to the crowd and Peter's conversation with the Jewish leaders is this healing is all about Jesus. The point of the healing is to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is to say that the author of life, whom you thought that you killed, has not only been raised from the dead and is alive, but is now by his power saving souls and transforming lives and causing the lame to walk and giving spiritual life to those who have been lost in sin. This Jesus is still at work, and he is still accomplishing God's purposes and God's design. The good news that we are preaching, Peter is saying, is, is that because Jesus, whom you rejected and killed, because Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Savior who was sent to die for the sins of his people. Therefore, and his point in Acts 4.12 to these Jewish leaders who believed that they had done it right, that they were, if anyone was righteous before God, it was them because of all of their religious rituals. And Peter says in Acts 4.12, and by the way, there is no hope for you apart from Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name even among men, except that which is in Jesus Christ. The Jewish priests had figured that hauling these two guys in front of the rulers and elders and all would, would stop them. Peter says, no, it's, it's, this is about what Jesus has done. There is no other way of salvation. That is a profoundly powerful, unafraid message. And in the heart of what Peter's doing, both at Solomon's portico, at, at this courtyard outside the temple, and then in front of the Jewish leaders, the heart of what Peter is saying is, yes, this miracle is astounding. But the, the, the fact of this man walking, who has been lame for his whole life for 40 plus years, the point of the healing is not that he is now walking. The point of the healing is to make you realize that Jesus Christ is risen and he is the savior and you must believe in him. You must repent and turn to him. That's what the healing is for. It, yes, it's miraculous what's been done here, but you miss it if you miss the fact that it's Jesus Christ who's done it and that Jesus Christ is the savior you must believe in. We need to see this. We need to see this because even in our country, the modern faith healing movement tends to, to, to focus on miracles of healing as, as sort of measuring sticks of, pe of people's faith, of believers' faith. If, if you have enough faith, you can be healed from anything. Jesus wants to heal your every physical infirmity. The only question is whether or not you have enough faith. That's not what's going on here in Acts or, or anywhere else in the book of Acts. God is working mightily through his servants, to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior. The whole point that Peter has said from the beginning, I want you to know that Jesus of Nazareth, and that's why he keeps calling him Jesus of Nazareth, this man that you have crucified in the flesh is risen, and he is Lord and Savior, and you need to repent 
and trust in him for salvation. It is your only hope. And the miracles were meant to confirm and to amplify that message. If you, if you thought, as he's saying to the, these leaders, if you thought you could kill the author of life and end his work, you are, you are utter fools. Because he's not only risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, he is still powerfully people and giving hope to those who have been lost. This man has been made well right before your eyes. All right, go back to chapter 3. Let's just read the last part of, of Peter's message here. Verse 17, Acts 3, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did all, also your rulers. We'll come back to what he means there in a second. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days... You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter's talking to fellow Jews, and he's saying to them, this, this has been foretold from the very beginning that God would send a savior, that man needs a rescuer, that God will send a substitute, a lamb, who will be sinless and who will bear man's sin in order that he might give life and forgiveness. He says this, this has been there. He calls them brothers in verse 17 because he's talking ethnically at this point. You are my Jewish brethren. And then he says, I, I know you act in ignorance on this. Now, we, we tend to think when we see that term ignorance, it's, it, it's as if it's an excuse. Ah, I, I just, I didn't know. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know that I couldn't go 80 miles an hour here in, in this stretch. I, I just didn't see the speed limit sign. I was ignorant. Well, it doesn't work. He's not saying that that's an excuse in some way. That's not Peter's point. Paul does the very same thing when he preaches in Acts chapter 13 and they are in Antioch and he goes into the synagogue. With the Jewish audience, he walks through many of the same things that Peter does. He goes back through Old Testament history, and he reminds them. Remember how, you, you've read all this, how God delivered the Israelites from slavery, how he protected them, and he brought them into the land, and he gave them judges, and he gave them kings, and he promised through the prophets a savior. He promised a suffering servant. And, and in Acts 13, 26, Paul also used the term brothers to refer to his Jewish brethren, and he says they're brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. There's Paul saying what 
essentially what Peter is saying. You actually did what God had prescribed and promised through the prophets. You became the instruments, though, of evil in killing the Messiah, in rejecting the Messiah who was sent to you. Paul was not absolving his Jewish brethren when he preached that in Antioch, nor is Peter here. In, in fact, Previously, Paul was one of those Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus Christ and who believed that those who followed Jesus deserved persecution. And here was Paul in Acts 13 saying, every Sabbath you read the words of the Old Testament prophets that were intended to point you toward the need for a Savior who is Jesus, a suffering servant who would come for you, and you missed it. God sent you the message of salvation, and he unfolded it right before your eyes, and you refused to see it, and you had Jesus killed. Now God has raised him from the dead. Peter and Paul preached very similar message whenever they could, whenever God gave them the opportunity with a Jewish audience, was to walk them back through the scriptures. And so Peter in Acts chapter 3, we saw it right there at the end of Acts 3, takes them all the way back to Abraham. And says, remember the promise that God gave to Abraham through your offspring, I will bring blessing to all of the families of the earth. Well, that child has come. That offspring is Jesus of Nazareth. That Savior is here. You crucified him, but he is risen. Part of, of repentance, which has been a theme now in Peter's preaching, part of turning to Christ is the humble admission that I was wrong. That, that, that whatever I believed was wrong and, and, and that I did it in willful ignorance. It may have been because I was confused. It may have been because I hadn't clearly heard the truth, but, but acting out of my own sinful nature, I dismissed God's promise. I was not believing in Jesus Christ. I was not embracing my need of a savior for my sin. I was not trusting in Jesus Christ. And if I will confess that I thought wrongly about these things and, and by doing so sinned against the creator and now turn to Jesus, then he says your sins will be blotted out. And that's where I want to finish, just back where we started in verse 19. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. There's a news story I read this week talking to a lawyer about different things that that lawyers are doing now that courtrooms are largely inactive. And so he was commenting about how people are doing things that they had put off for a long time, taking care of wills and, and directives and, and other sorts of power of attorney documents. And one of the things this attorney said is, we've seen a resurgence, this is a quote from the attorney, we've seen a resurgence in people applying for what we call expungements. Those are essentially a way to erase your record or arrest from the past. Got people coming to us who have had arrests in the past and they, they want that erased from their record. And, and he said the, the, the reason that this is increasing, why we're seeing so much of this now, is the job market is so tough. And, and job seeking is even harder for someone who has an arrest record. And he went on to say that in the state where he practices, he said, quote, an expungement will make it look as though you were never charged in the first place. What Peter says in Acts 3.19 is in reference to the fact that we are all sinners. We are all conceived in sin. We are born in a nature that is rebellious against God, and we sin against him. And what Peter says in Acts 3.19 is through Jesus Christ, that record can be expunged. Turn, he says, and your sins will be blotted out. 
the papyrus that they used to write on that day, uh, it, it was easy to wipe words off. Some, some of the material that they used didn't always hold ink, on, and, and it could be easily wiped off, some of the stuff that they used and, and reused some of the papyrus. And, and he's using that sort of analogy. Yeah, it, it was amazing that a guy who'd never walked before was now standing in front of this crowd. But Peter's point to this audience is, if, if you're looking at that and thinking, that's all that happened today, you're missing it. Because Jesus offers something even better than being able to walk. Jesus offers something better than health. By his death on the cross, Jesus is able to completely erase my full record of thoughts and actions of rebellion against God, of all of the things I've done and not done that were in disobedience to the creator who made me, Jesus is able to wipe away that record, that record that would condemn me forever. The psalmist in Psalm 130 celebrates this very truth when he says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God, if all you did was keep score and build the record against me and you promised to never remove that record, that that record would stand forever and was permanent, then no one would stand before you. We would all be condemned by our sin. But with you, O oh Lord, he says, there's forgiveness. And that forgiveness comes through the willing sacrifice of God's son, the sinless one. Jesus taking on himself our sins so that they may be blotted out and we would receive forgiveness, that we may receive rest, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The expungement of a criminal record doesn't assure blessing and prosperity after that. When the judge agrees and wipes away that record, all it does is it says, okay, the record's erased. You're on your own. Now, what happens from here? But when Jesus Christ blots out our sin, there is so much more. And that's what Peter's saying. He not only erases the record, but there is blessing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, life can be hard. Temptation is still real. There is still the temptation to sin. There's still the sin of other people that causes hurt. But he says there are times, there are seasons of refreshing that are coming to you from the presence of Jesus Christ because your sin has been blotted out and he directly connects those times of refreshing with what he goes on to say, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is the point that the Jewish people so often got confused at in the first thing, the prophecies of God's blessing and God's kingdom and the fact that he would be at work in the nation of Israel and, and all they wanted was a political rescuer. And Peter's saying, yes, all of this blessing, all that the prophets spoken of to be fulfilled in Jesus, there's so much more. It's not just his death and resurrection, but he is returning. So not only does Jesus blot out your sin, but there's also refreshing in knowing that there is an eternal hope, that Jesus is coming for his people. That's where Peter puts this ultimate joy of rest in the return of the Savior. Verse 21 says, Jesus is in heaven until the time for restoring all the things which God spoke by the prophets. This is all his sweet, God's perfect design. We can know rest and refreshment even 
in the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of a time when people are tempted toward panic, we can know rest because our sin has been blotted out if you are trusting in Jesus Christ and because Jesus is coming back for his people. Because when Jesus Christ comes back, God will restore all things. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. No sickness, no coronavirus, no disease, no death, no sorrow, no suffering. The author of life will be joined with his people and we will be with him forever. Peter's not preaching a message of repentance because he somehow wants to belittle these people or make them feel awful and just kind of leave them there. He's saying, turn to Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness. There is a returning Savior who gives you rest. Our Savior is in heaven, and he is coming back. We hear, I hear it so many times on the news, people in social media and the experts talking about how the, the earth needs healing. The earth is healing now with man not being out there. Listen, I'm sorry, but, but the earth is still on a trajectory that is heading toward its demise. Not coronavirus, be something else. It is not until the king comes and makes a new heaven and a new earth and restores all things according to God's design and those who are trusting in him, that is our hope. That is why we have rest during seasons of uncertainty because we know this is not all there is because we, we've had our sins blotted out because of the savior who died in our place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you came to give your life as a ransom for sinners. We praise you and thank you that having proven yourself by miracles that showed your authority, even in the face of that, people mocked and laughed and ultimately said, crucify him. And yet, you have still saved a people to be your own. You have still rescued sinners. You have still taken from among this collection of rejectors and haters. You have, for your by your grace and for your glory, you have saved sinners. Not just enabled people to walk, healing the blind and the lame, but actually restoring, making new the souls of those who would trust in you. Thank you for that marvelous work of salvation. Thank you for these truths. Help us to rest in them this week, that our sins have been blotted out, that we have rest, that we await the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes all things new. Lord, if there's anybody listening this morning who's not yet trusting in Jesus Christ, might you, by your grace, as you did with that lame man, might you work to open their eyes and to see Jesus and to trust in him, to turn from whatever, whatever has been believed and thought about him to believe the truth about who Jesus is. And we who walk in that truth, thank you. Thank you that our sins are forgiven and that we one day will be able to stand in the presence of our creator.